scripture readings, Psalms 21 and Luke 19, verses 1 through 10. For the king rejoices in your strength, Lord. How great is his joy in the victories you give. You have granted him his heart's desire, and you have not withheld the request of his lips. You came to greet him with rich blessings and placed a crown of pure gold on his head. He asked you for life, and you gave it to him. Length of days, forever and ever. Through the victories you gave, his glory is great. You have bestowed on him splendor and majesty. Surely you will have granted him unending blessings and made him glad with the joy of your presence. For the king trusts in the Lord. Through the unfailing love of the Most High, he will not be shaken. Your hand will lay hold on all of your enemies. Your right hand will seize your foes. When you appear for battle, you will burn them up as in blazing furnace. The Lord will swallow them up in his wrath, and his fire will consume them. You will destroy the descendants from earth, their prosperity from mankind. Though they plot evil against you and devise wicked schemes, they cannot succeed. You will make them turn their backs when you aim at them and draw a bow. Be exalted in your strength, Lord. Will you sing and praise your might? Jesus entered, entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacharias. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was. But because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed up in a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacharias, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, He has gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. May God impress these words upon our hearts and minds. Good morning, everybody. Glad to be here on a pretty Sunday morning. It's going to get warm today, theoretically, before it snows again next week. Don't you love living in Iowa? Isn't it great? It's so much fun. I wanted to know, I had a question while I was working this week on things. How many of you know all the books of the Bible in order? I don't see a hand going up. Used to. I don't think I was ever able to memorize them. At at, uh, church one time we had a workshop where they were supposed to teach us all the books of the Bible in order, and, you know, I quickly forgot them. Anyway, my talk today is is in the New Testament, in the books of Matthew and Luke. 
Now, we may not be able to name the books of the Bible in order, but most of us know the first four books of the New Testament of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So Matthew is rather easy to find as it's the first book in the New Testament. And we're going to spend some time in Matthew 8 and 9 and in Luke 19. Matthew writes the story of Jesus as a witness that Jesus was the anticipated Messiah who brought the kingdom of God to earth and the prophesied fulfillment of God's promises of true peace and deliverance for both Jew and Gentile. Matthew's gospel is great to read. It's a narrative, and quite a lot of it is devoted to the specific things that Jesus did and said. We know that not everything he said or did was written down. That would have probably been way too much. But I think perhaps what was written down was written down specifically so that we could have a better understanding of Jesus and of what God expects of us. Chapters 8 and 9 of Matthew's Gospel record episodes in the life and ministry of Jesus during the early parts of his Galilean ministry. In earlier chapters, Jesus has shown he is the Messiah in word and through his teaching. But now in chapter 8 and 9, he begins to show his that he is the Messiah indeed through the performance of many miracles demonstrating that the kingdom of God has arrived. Jesus kept a busy schedule, didn't he? I don't think any other person at that time maintained such a rigid schedule or reached out to touch the lives of more people. We read of hundreds of people following him, pushing to get close, trying to hear his message. The rich and the poor came. And yet Jesus was always ready to lend a helping hand to anyone, regardless of social status. In chapters 8 and 9, we see Jesus healing a leper, healing a centurion servant, healing the mother-in-law of Simon Peter, casting out demons from those who were possessed with them. While he was at rest in a boat, a, a, a mighty storm arose on the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus rebuked the wind and the sea, and there came a time of calm. Jesus went to the other side of the Jordan and cast demons out of two men. He came back west of the Jordan and healed a paralyzed man. He called a man named Matthew to to follow him. He healed a woman who had a problem with hemorrhage for 12 years. And he healed the daughter of one of the rulers of the city. Two blind men followed him and he healed them. He cast demons out of a mute man. Everything he did was to help people physically, mentally, and spiritually. The close of chapter 9 gives a summary of everything Jesus did. He engaged in a threefold ministry, teaching, preaching, and healing. And you know what? That's still what our ministry today should be. Teaching, healing, and and, uh, helping us mentally and, and spiritually. When Jesus took the time to view the people, it brought a sense of compassion to his soul. The tenderness of his heart caused him to identify with them and make their suffering become a part of his own. He then offered a command to his followers to get into action 
Use your talents to help spread the message of God's kingdom and heal humanity's spiritual hurt. Let's look at Matthew uh, 9, verses 35 through 38. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. These verses bring us a better picture of our Jesus. He saw so much confusion. People who were so harassed and and helpless If any people in the world have ever been confused as to their state of life and ultimate security, it was probably the Jewish people of Jesus' day. They'd been in bondage, with the exception of a few years, to a foreign power since the days of the Assyrian and Babylonian empires. They'd been kicked up and down the field of international politics like a football. False messiahs had arisen and they'd followed them. They came to the place where they didn't know who they could trust or to whom they could turn. They had to be confused. But their world is not unlike our world today. We kind of live in a world where life is a little difficult to know what the real issues are. Unfortunately, it seems that our political life is defined in simple terms. One party is in power and the other party wants to be in power. Militarily, we're so confused. Some people think we should seek peace by preparing a strong defense against possible aggression. Others believe that we should disarm completely and immediately and then show others our good faith. Economically, we're in a state of confusion. Most of us, unless we've suffered a recent reverse, have more material possessions than we've ever had in our life. Yet, there seems to be more uncertainty and anxiety concerning our economic situation as we look to the future than we've ever had in the history of our lives. It seems that we're concerned and upset about the future of our health care, welfare, tax reform, gun control, and so on. Terrorism frightens us as we never know where or when something terrible could happen. Jesus sees this, and this brings us to the second part of the picture of Christ. He had compassion. As Jesus viewed the spiritual confusion of these people, as well as their material needs, he was stirred within the recesses of his soul. All of suffering humanity comes within the orbit of Christ's interest. Jesus was aware that his people were beaten down and discouraged, and it crushed his heart. To see one without an an aim or a purpose causes any sensitive person to feel deeply. The word compassion literally means suffering with, and it's a pretty meaningful word in our English language. One of our greatest needs today is for people who are strong enough to be leaders and yet tender enough to feel deeply the deficiencies of others. Jesus was such a person. No one was more sympathetic with the people who were around him. 
Jesus knew the people had lost the sense of God being with them. They had lost so much, and everything seemed so hopeless. This must have just grieved him to his core. And yet he knew there was hope, and that he was the hope. The godlessness of our day is enough to bring a shock of concern to any person who's spiritually sensitive. Here's the amazing thing. In America, it's okay to be passionate about everything, except God. That's not politically correct, to be passionate about God. I can be passionate about movies. I can be passionate about sports, or politics, or fashions and clothes. I can be passionate about restaurants, and some of us really are. But in society, it's not okay to be passionate about God or Jesus. That seems to be a no-no. If life is to be worth living for the multitudes, we need courageous people possessed with the love of God and Jesus Christ, who are possessed with the passion, who will have the compassion to minister to those in need and point them to the one who will make their lives new. As we find our new pastor, may he or she have the compassionate mind to help those in need and to point them to Jesus. I hope that's our priority. Jesus saw with the eye of God, and he felt with the heart of both God and humanity. One of the tragedies of our day is that we can walk through the streets of our town and cities and never feel one touch of emotion when we see people who are torn and weary without a shepherd and without hope in this world or in the one to come. It's only the compassionate love of Christ in us that can motivate us for effective Christian service. Jesus not only loved people, he believed in them. So we're going to go back to the story in Matthew. So we've got Jesus walking down the road, and he passes a tax collection booth. Now here's a little little history for you. The Romans would hire Jews to collect the Roman taxes in their villages. They would hire people who knew the villages, who knew what who owned what and what who owed what. The Romans would basically auction off the right to be the town's tax collector to the highest bidder. Then the tax collector could skim money off the top, calling it their commission. Now nobody liked tax collectors. The only reason I can think of somebody becoming a tax collector is that they didn't care. The reputation in the community would be damaged. Didn't care. He might break his father's heart, but he didn't care. Taking that position would place him on the outside, almost like a legalized extortion, but he didn't care. Tax collectors became a part of the unclean, and those who tried to be clean would not associate with them. You know the feeling when you get a call from the IRS. Well, Matthew was the IRS of his time. He was the judge and jury of what was owed in taxes, and he got a portion of any tax he took. The tax collectors of Jesus' time were not known for any compassion or any kindness. They were only known for getting as much as they could out of the people. We look back again at verse 9 as As Jesus passed from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And Matthew rose and followed him. The crowd would have looked at Matthew and not been impressed that he had any spiritual potential. 
but Jesus picks a tax collector as one of his 12 disciples, one of the 12 to actually journey with him, eat with him, watch him, and minister with him. Jesus picks a tax collector. We would not have approved of Matthew, and we probably wouldn't have let our kids hang around with his kids. But Jesus sees things differently, doesn't he? Jesus saw Matthew and realized immediately there was a man who could become one part of his inner circle. Jesus let Matthew know that he saw the good in him. The good came forth and developed under the teachings of our Savior. It was compassion that led Jesus to think Matthew had possibility for growing. And it is that same compassion that leads Jesus to know that you and I, you and I, have possibility for spiritual growth. And folks, he calls us too, just like he did Matthew. Another story of Jesus' compassion is the story of Zacchaeus that that Don read. We find this in Luke 19. So let's talk just a minute about exactly who Zacchaeus was. Besides being a wee little man, the Bible, in all of the the, the times that he's mentioned, he's talked about being short. He must have been really short that it had to be included in the writings. Zacchaeus was another tax collector. Now, while we know they were unclean and not liked, there's more to the story of Zacchaeus. He wasn't just a tax collector. He was the chief tax collector. So take everything you know about the tax collectors and multiply it a few fold. And then you come up with a guy like Zacchaeus. He was a turncoat Jew pilfering his fellow Jews for all they were worth. But on top of that, he almost certainly made even more money from the tax collectors working under him. We can only imagine some the reaction of some of his neighbors as Zacchaeus' home became more lavishly direct, de- decorated, his clothes finer, his food richer. There can be no doubt that in the streets of Jericho, Zacchaeus was a dirty name. Now keep in mind that with such a reputation, public appearances might have been uncomfortable at at best for Zacchaeus. Consider what it must have been felt like to be hated by nearly everyone. He would be sneered at on a regular basis, and it wouldn't be surprising if the residents of Jericho openly mocked him about his height. That would have been their only line of defense against him. Keep in mind Zacchaeus' less-than-ideal reputation around town. It's a little bit surprising to find him in the story, in the midst of a great crowd, waiting to see the prophet Jesus. If Zacchaeus knew what was good for him, he would have stayed home out of the way. But as it was, he found himself in the midst of the mob, so completely surrounded that he couldn't see the road, much less who might have been coming down it. He was probably getting pushed and shoved around, maybe more on on purpose than accidental. It's a good opportunity for the crowds to kind of give him a little taste of his own. But it didn't seem to bother Zacchaeus. He was not deterred by the mob surrounding him. There was something about this Jesus that compelled him to be there, and he wasn't going to let his vertical challenge keep him from that happening. Eventually, we learn that Zacchaeus broke free from the crowd and he ran ahead to a sycamore tree standing by the side of the road. Now, sycamore trees are not grand trees, but they have low branches and are good for climbing. And it would give Zacchaeus just the boost that he needed to see down the road. 
But keep in mind that by climbing that tree, Zacchaeus was making himself more vulnerable to the sneers and jeers of the crowd. Whereas before he could only be seen by those standing right around him, now he's in full view of the crowd. But he wasn't ashamed. He wasn't afraid. He wanted to see Jesus. There was such a sense of anticipation and excitement about seeing Jesus that it was it was changing. This was changing Zacchaeus, and nothing else mattered. But that's not the end of the story, because grace continues to work in Zacchaeus' life. As Jesus enters Jericho, he comes along the sycamore tree, where Zacchaeus is perched. As, as it said in the reading, Jesus stops in his tracks, looks up to Zacchaeus, and calls him down from the tree, explaining that he, Jesus, is going to spend that night in Zacchaeus' home. Wow. Isn't that interesting? And that's the beginning of Zacchaeus' total transformation. It's justifying grace working in Zacchaeus' life as he responds to Jesus' invitation and he climbs down the tree. Sanctifying grace is the grace that changes us. It's what works in our lives when we respond to Christ's invitation by moving us from our old selves into the new life that Jesus makes possible. Zacchaeus' climb up the sycamore tree was the sign of grace working in his life, calling him to Jesus' presence. Zacchaeus' descent from the sycamore tree is the sign of justifying grace changing him, setting him firmly on the path of one of Christ's followers. It's hard to imagine any significant sort of life change in such a short amount of time and that there can be no doubt about the transformation in Zacchaeus' life when we see what happens next. Now remember, this is the chief tax collector, filthy, stinking rich, power playing in Jericho society. He had it all and then some, at least in terms of worldly security. This man had what must have been the highest level of financial security at that time, and now he's the center of attention in Jericho. As Jesus stands there talking to Zacchaeus, all, all eyes are on them, and it's the eyes of the people who have been cheated by this wealthy man. But while the crowds were still busy judging Zacchaeus, Jesus did something else entirely. He loved Zacchaeus when nobody else did. Jesus showed compassion to a man, to a man who in many ways was undeserving of any mercy and certainly had not received any from his peers in Jericho. Folks, that's what grace is. Christ's unmerited love and mercy for us, even when we don't deserve it. And so it is that Zacchaeus' reaction to Jesus is even more amazing than Jesus' reaction to the man in the tree. As he stands there with Jesus, surrounded by glaring eyes and grumbling voices, he declares that he's going to give his riches away half of everything he has to the poor, and he will provide a fourfold restitution to any he cheated. This is sanctifying grace working in Zacchaeus' life, moving him toward greater Christ-likenesses as he abandons his former life and riches and embraces some of the key values of God's king kingdom, serving the poor and offering justice. Jesus showed complete, unconditional love for Zacchaeus, this justifying grace changed Zacchaeus' life 
He had finally found the more excellent way, and he wasn't afraid to show it. It really didn't matter to him that he was now out of work, completely. It didn't matter that he was about to lose everything and probably become poor like the people he'd been overtaxing in Jericho. This newfound faith and God-sanctifying grace at work meant a new life to be lived in a new way, and that's exactly what Zacchaeus did. So that's what we need to hear this morning. Jesus loved Zacchaeus, and he loves each of us too. What we have done or left undone matters not. We're all sinners who fall short of the glory of God. We all have much of which to be ashamed. But Jesus still loves us. And we have have accepted that love and entered into that relationship with Christ. It changes us. The simple story of Zacchaeus teaches us that Christ forgives sinners. The more complicated stories reminds us that Christ's forgiveness results in transformed lives full of anticipation, generosity, and love. When Jesus found the lost Zacchaeus and his life was changed, Jesus told him, Today, salvation has come to this household. So as always, we have a choice. We we can continue with life as we know it, following Christ's ways only when it's convenient. Or we can be more like Zacchaeus, taking that step of faith. The third picture we have of Christ is that he gave us a commission. As we read in the text in Matthew 9, Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them, because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers in this harvest field. Our Lord used terminology that was appropriate to his listeners. Here he speaks in terms of people in need of the grace of God being compared to a harvest, ready to be harvested. He emphasizes the perennial nature of the spiritual harvest. Jesus pointed his followers to the possibilities for service. He pictured these opportunities as a harvest that's truly plenteous, but without enough workers. The injunction of Jesus is that we need to be praying for the Lord to send forth labors into the harvest. Now, Jesus didn't hold a committee meeting. He didn't assign six disciples to find six workers. He asked us to pray to find our workers. Jesus tells us that harvest is great, but there aren't a lot of workers. We're to pray for it. Perhaps Jesus realized that if people pray, surely concerning a need, they will eventually offer themselves to meet that need. It's quite significant that the next chapter tells of how Jesus called his twelve and sent them out to witness concerning him. Actually, the calling of the twelve follows immediately upon the statement of Jesus that we're to pray that the Lord will bring forth labors into the harvest. Later in Matthew, Jesus gives the the commission. Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. 
and surely I am with you always, to the very end of the age. Do you see that? We're to pray, and then we're to go. How much do you really care about people? Does it really matter to you that hearts are broken, lives are torn, hope has been blighted, and many people are living without a sense of direction in life? Jesus cared. He didn't send a, set up an office in Capernaum with a sign that said, Jesus in office, hours 9 to 5, can be seen by appointment. He went where the people were. He made it his, his point to be at the very place that Zacchaeus was in order that he might win Zacchaeus to faith himself. With the tremendous pressures that are in the world today, Christian people can't afford to become complacent. We must think as Jesus thought, feel as he felt, and work as he worked to God's glory and the helping of the lost and defeated humanity. We have to live a life that's changed. We can't just give when it's convenient or worship only when we don't want to sleep in. We can't use our faith as a springboard to the next great thing in this life. Real, genuine faith in Christ transforms us so completely that everyone we encounter will see the love of Jesus as we live our life the way Jesus lived. Our church is at a crossroads as we select a new pastor. We hope that this pastor will guide and lead us in our Christian growth. We pray that by working with our new pastor, we may be able to see the need around us, have the compassion for all, and and to choose and train the labors to increase the harvest for God. Would you pray with me? Our Father, we need a closer walk with you. Help us to know that it will not come to us accidentally nor incidentally. Make us willing to accept the disciplines of the life that lead us closer to you. Help us to be willing to take the initiative and self-sacrifice as we dedicate ourselves for, to your purposes for us. Help us to recognize that we are incomplete until we have laid our all on the altar. Give us both the grace and the knowledge to grow toward your likeness. May we find your presence more real each day as we give ourselves more completely. Forgive us where we have sinned and strengthen us where we are weak. Let our love for you be unreserved. Help us ever to live in the light of the glorious gospel of our Lord and seek to make him known to others. In his name, amen.